This is an AMI podcast. I'm Jyothi Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Canada is often thought of as a country of immigrants. The prevailing discourse includes rugged migrants braving harsh conditions and establishing the country against the odds. There's of course more to the story. On the one hand, there is the legacy of colonization of indigenous communities which we deal with to this day. On the other, there is a history of biased immigration policy shaped by ideas of who is a suitable immigrant. Over the decades, racialized communities and people with disabilities have both been excluded in large numbers. And while the Kamigata Maru or the Chinese head tax have received greater attention from scholars and historians, relatively little is known about people with disabilities wishing to immigrate. Today, we discuss immigration and disability. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI Audio. I'm Jyothi Gupta. It's really good to be with you today and one of the things I wanted to explore after reading an article in the Toronto Star about the changes to Canada's immigration rules for people with disabilities is a, a bit of a history of immigration and people with disabilities in Canada. In the second half of the program we'll be speaking to Jay Dolma, she wrote a book about this topic and Jay will talk to us a little bit about the history and some of the ideas that excluded people with disabilities from seeking immigration in Canada and some of the ideas that restricted immigration of people with disabilities in Canada but first to find out what's been making news more recently we've reached the immigration reporter for the Toronto Star Nicholas Kume is joining us today from Toronto Nicholas welcome to the pulse it's really good to have you on the program thanks it's my pleasure thanks for having me on your show Tell us a little bit about what the immigration rules are right now for people with disabilities who want to immigrate to Canada. Sure. Under Canada's immigration law, there's actually a provision about medical inadmissibility which affects anyone applying to visit, study, work or live permanently in Canada. The rules deny entry of people from coming here based on three grounds. One, if they are a danger to the public, two, if they are a danger to public safety, and lastly, um, if their presence in Canada will cause excessive demand on the country's health and social services. The law doesn't really specify or even use the word disability as a ground to bar people from coming, but obviously this clause applies to people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us in sort of this idea that about when we think about this notion of excessive burden, uh, what has the government actually found? I mean, I'm sure they've done reports and studies to determine the costs associated with immigrants with disabilities. Is it in fact an excessive burden? Um, how immigration officials measure what constitutes excessive demand, uh, actually that's the term that they use, excessive demand, mm-hmm. is they use the cost of average Canadian per capita health and social services cost as a benchmark against the estimated cost uh, a foreign national may incur 
So in 2020, that cost for each Canadian was estimated at $7,068. But under the temporary measures adopted by the federal government in 2018, that threshold that applies to immigrants was set at three times that amount uh, for Canadians, which um, was set at um, $21,204 last year. So um, there were some interim changes made by the government in 2018, as I said. So after that uh, two-year pilot program to test the impacts of the, the higher threshold, the government did not see a flood of migrants with disabilities admitted to the country, despite the relaxed criteria. Instead, they found that only 62 applicants and or, and or their family members with what they called manageable health conditions uh, who, have, who would have otherwise been refused entry in the past, being admitted to Canada. And the cost that they incurred um, on our health and social service system was estimated at um, $840,000 per year. But the cost threshold wasn't the only interim change that was made back in 2018. Officials also removed special education costs from the formula in the, in, 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 in the definition of social services. So as a result, uh, 70 immigration applications that were without any health care concerns otherwise actually got approved. So the, mm -hmm. the proposed changes to the law published by, by Ottawa recently that came after lengthy negotiations with all the provinces and territories are essentially, you know, just an attempt to, to make the uh, interim policy changes permanent through the amendments uh, of the immigration law. Mm -hmm. And what sort of reaction have you heard from various stakeholders about these proposed changes? Right. Uh, so advocates for people with disabilities obviously welcome those changes. They have always argued that the old measures were discriminatory against people with disabilities and completely disregarded their contributions to the society and being viewed, you know, they, they feel like they're being stigmatized um, further and being viewed as a burden. So they believe those changes are going to make Canada's immigration system more inclusive. The, the old formula didn't really take into consideration of the potential contributions. Uh, of the people of people with disabilities, um, for example, you know one thing that I often hear from people is you know the the late world known physicist uh, Stephen Hawkins would not have been able to immigrate to Canada, but yet you know he had made you know tremendous contributions in science. So uh, of course there are always some people um, who disagree with these government changes. They've expressed their displeasure of those changes from financial perspectives. Uh, considering people with disabilities a liability if they allowed entry into Canada. And that's mainly based on comments that I've seen on social media and also uh, based on the emails that I've got in response to the story that um, I wrote. But I have to add that, you know, it's a minority of people who share that view. When the government makes any sort of major change to any law, there is a period of public consultation. Is that the case? Uh, in this instance as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the public does have until April 27 to comment on these proposed permanent changes to the, uh, to the law. And uh, further details, actually, you know, you can find uh, on the Canada Gazette website. And um, you just have to look for the, uh, the edition published on March 27th of this year. 
and submissions can be made uh, by email. The email address, you know, is a rather lengthy one, so I'm not going to repeat <laughs> on your show, but uh, it can be found at the end of the notice uh, published in the Canada, uh, Canada Gazette website. Nicholas, thank you very much for that update. We really appreciate that you took a couple of minutes to speak to us today. Not at all. Thanks for having me again, uh, really. My name is Joita Gupta, and in the first half of our program dealing with immigration and disability, you heard from Nicholas Kuhn, who is the Toronto Star's immigration reporter, about some recent changes to the Canadian rules and regulations about medical inadmissibility for people with disabilities. There's obviously some positive news, and we are, we're all very excited about it. But to put this news into context, we've reached Professor of English at the University of Waterloo. Jay Dolmage, apart from being a professor in English, also has a keen interest in disability studies. In fact, he specializes in this particular area. His book is known as Disabled Upon Arrival, Eugenics, Immigration, and the Construction of Race and Disability, and the book was published in 2018. Jay Dolmage joins us today from Huron Lake, Ontario. Hello and uh, welcome to The Pulse. It's so good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. So Jay, I know you've got a lot going on today. We won't keep you for very long, but tell us a little bit about how you as an English professor come to be interested in immigration and how uh, people with disabilities fare in the immigration process. Sure. Um, I mean, one of my one of my uh, one of the ways that came into doing the research was simply through language, um, trying to understand where some of these the terminology that we have around disability came from. Um, you know, uh, words that that uh, we now understand because they uh, as harmful. And I'm I'm somebody who studies rhetoric, uh, which is sort of you know how we make meaning and and negotiate meaning and and what impact that has on people, and so a lot of it was just trying to trace back where these where this terminology came from, that led me into um, you know uh, the kind of the pseudoscience of eugenics, which is where a lot of this terminology came from, and learning more about how how um, eugenicists in, in the turn of the 20th century, early part of the 20th century, um, really understood immigration as the place where they could make their, you know, racist and pseudoscientific claims, make them happen. It was a kind of arena where they could experiment on, um, in, a, in a true way, with, with uh, uh, tailoring the gene pool. Um, by allowing some some people in and and um, making sure that other people could not come in, uh, that was done really successfully and in a very organized way in the United States. Uh, and it was done in Canada, but in a much less organized way. Uh, mm-hmm. And I also think Canadians like to think of our immigration history very differently um, than the way that it actually was. So part of the um, motivation then to to publish on this or to write about it was to um, help uh, Canadians understand that we do still have um, uh, very restrictive uh, immigration policy and that its uh, history can be can be tied directly back to eugenics. That word eugenics, you brought it up a couple of times. For those of us who aren't familiar with it, what does it mean? It, it, for, for the people who were popularizing it in, um, in the early part of the 20th century, it was... Um, uh, uh, the science of better breeding, the science of um, uh, kind of reaching into bodies um, 
to, to dissuade some people from having children, to make it impossible for some people to have children through programs, uh, for instance, of sterilization, which happened in Canada up until very recently. Um, it was also the idea of keeping um, certain people away from other people and um, having p- particular groups of people um, uh, have contact with one another so that they would um, breed, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. It came from from people's understanding of farming and live, livestock, and it was a way to apply those kinds of same principles to the general human population. Mm. So when we think about this concept of eugenics applied to immigration, let's just take a moment to think about uh, racialized people as immigrants what sort of ideas governed which races were deemed to be suitable immigrants? I'm assuming a part of that conversation was also this this idea that some people uh, were more likely compared to others to be able to endure the rugged, harsh Canadian winter. So what kind of ideas were floating around out there? Sure, that's, that's one of the really interesting and pretty flawed ideas. I mean, uh, Mackenzie King, Canadian Prime Minister, um, his goal was that, that Canada would remain, in his words, quote, a white man's country. Mm. And, uh, and that was the goal of, of Canadian immigration. Uh, most of the programs that they created were designed to basically halt immigration from anywhere but um, Western Europe, you know, mm. in particular the British Isles. And, and so what was required then was, um, and it happened, there needed to be scientific or pseudoscientific arguments made for the biological superiority of people from those areas. If you wanted to stop immigration of people who didn't look like what we, what the, the, the you know, image of what Canadians were supposed to look like, a white man's country, then there needed to also be arguments for the biological inferiority of other peoples and races. And the, the science wasn't very good. It was terrible. Um, but there was a lot of effort put into um, not just building a kind of pseudoscientific basis for that discrimination, but also spreading the word. Um, mm-hmm. And part of my work looks at the, the different ways. Not only did Canada have these policies when people arrived, but Canada really wanted to spread these messages around mm-hmm. um, within Canada and elsewhere. Um, so they wanted to travel to, to countries and basically say, this is the type of person we're looking for, and these are the types of people who we will not allow in. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about how we went about uh, spreading that message to countries outside of Canada to ensure that the right, right kind of immigrant came to the country. Sure. Well, we paid the best photographers in Canada to take pictures. Um, so uh, the Topley Studio um, created what, what we call immigrant-type photos. And those were uh, pictures of particular groups of immigrants that they could then label, right? So these would be Hungarian immigrants or these would be North African immigrants. Um, and then you could create a kind of um, – what's I, I can't – a kind of uh, dictionary in a way or, or atlas mm-hmm. of peoples which was popular, you know, we borrowed these ideas. These happened in the States um, before they happened in Canada. Um, and then we did, we even did things like we sent um, what are, were called magic lantern shows. They're slideshows basically of these photographs. 
and Canadian um, uh, immigration agents traveled to Europe and they showed these these um, slideshows basically. The slideshows also mm-hmm. featured um, images of residential schools because there was the message needed to be come to Canada. We have this, uh, you know, uh, the indigenous peoples are controlled. Um, this is not an issue. Um, and also big, uh, you know, lots of pictures of like produce and livestock. These are the kinds of um, opportunities you would have as a farmer. Um, so, but also among those images, and this is something I've written about, um, and it's it's difficult to prove, but within the repertoire of those images, I did find pictures of disabled people um, and labeled, mm. you know, uh, rejected immigrant or immigrant to be deported uh, because I believe that they were showing, um, you know, uh, foreign audiences who couldn't come and that that mm. was an argument to the people that they wanted that they were going to come to the kind of to a white person's country. Right. And when you think about disability, it's not just physical disability. I think it's fairly straightforward to assume that, you know, they might exclude people with physical disabilities. But was there also not a fear of people considered, quote unquote, feeble minded? How did uh, Canadian immigration policy at the time respond to um, concerns around mental health? Sure. So there were there were a series of designations that are what we would call like a blanket designation. So there was no real um, scientific basis for it. In the United States, they used what they called the, the, the six-second physical, which is basically immigration agents were trained to be able to look at somebody and identify whether they might be mentally inferior. And they used terms like words like moron or idiot or feeble-minded as what they called um, in the States, they called them wastebasket um, terms. The whole idea was that it was meant to be vague, that they could use that designation, apply that designation to anyone who didn't look the way that they thought they should. Um, there weren't very, in Canada, there wasn't very much in terms of any kind of a cognitive test, um, you know, nothing like that. So, Instead, those terms became really flexible. Um, you could apply them to uh, any group that you wanted to deem inadmissible. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, in Canada, there wasn't as much um, denial on the border, you know, at Shed 21 in Halifax as there had been in, in um, at Ellis Island in the United States, simply because mm-hmm. things were just less organized. Um, but that uh, that idea that there are some people would become, for instance, a public charge. That's another designation that carries on into today. It's an idea mm-hmm. that some bodies are going to be um, productive and that some bodies will be a drain um, oh. on resources. And you, we see that very much built into the current Canadian immigration policy. I was going to ask you, these ideas around eugenics seem so far removed from our reality to what extent have these ideas persisted to this day? Have we left most or all of this behind, or does it still persist in some form or the other? Oh, they very much still persist. Not not that long ago, Prime Minister of Canada had a reference to to old stock Canadians. I mean, mm-hmm. that language is is directly eugenic. The idea of stock. Um, that's the exact. Um, argument that was made at the turn of the 20th century that there was a stock of canadians that was good it was white right it came from particular parts of western europe 
and that any new stock was was needed to be constructed as inferior. And we still see that. Um, even the idea uh, of constructing, um, you know, certain groups of refugees as uh, a p- potential drain on resources rather than as uh, with other generations, um, you know, product- productive immigrants who, who have potential, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that, that, that eugenic sentiment hasn't gone away. The other thing that made it more, that brought it out a little bit more plainly was Donald Trump. And he looked at Canadian immigration policy and he really admired it because of the, of the, um, uh, the ways that we directly placed monetary value on bodies. You know, some bodies were, were seen as um, a potential drain on resources and that was attractive from a eugenic perspective. Uh, the fact that Donald Trump would tweet things that were directly eugenic, you know, allowed us to connect the dots. But I don't think that that mm-hmm. story of eugenics has ever faded away. So in very recent news, the Canadian government did go back and look at its immigration policies and is now going to remove uh, the medical inadmissibility criteria for people with disabilities. As someone who studies this issue, what does it say to you when the government makes that sort of pivot in its thinking? Is it something that uh, indicates a change in the construction of people with disabilities? Are we moving away from this idea that people with disabilities are um, maybe a drain on the system? I would hope so. I would hope so. Um, but the issue, the issue, I mean, in a way, the, uh, the changes are shifts, right? But they're not, they're not, mm-hmm. um, they're not exactly, uh, I mean, the change has been relatively gradual and it's, there's been a signal sent to current Canadians, right. And potential Canadians, uh, through the, the, just how long that that clause existed, that sort of says Mm -hmm. that that is part of the calculus, um, you know, you know, nowadays. So, you know, and back in 2018, that, that inadmissibility clause was revised. There'd been Mm -hmm. a really public, um, and, and ongoing consultation with, um, disability rights groups and other people. And when the clause was simply changed rather than removed, um, it, it was allowed to perform the same function that it always performed. So, um, and, and we're still seeing cases in the news where this is happening, um, you know, where families, uh, a family that has one child with a disability is being um, uh, denied permanent residency, and these cases are continuing to happen. So I think for most people who are following this very very closely from a disability rights perspective, we still would need to see a lot more evidence of um, this actually being an inclusive policy. Uh, there will be other, other levers um, for eugenics to work through um, immigration. There'll be other levers for disabled people to be disadvantaged. You've anticipated a couple of my questions, and I guess the first one would be, well, aside from the change in policy, what else would you like to see? What other evidence would you like to be presented with in order to be assured that people with disabilities had an equal opportunity to immigrate to Canada? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, I wish that I had a, an easy answer because mm-hmm. I think what I've seen, what I've seen is that the discourse around disability and immigration and the policy around disability and immigration are connected. So how we talk about disabled people 
and how we talk about immigration is inflected um, by a sense that there is a um, kind of monolithic uh, Canadian identity that's not constantly changing, mm-hmm. and that there's some a lot of people who value. Uh, who are invested in that not changing. So, and the policy becomes malleable in that way too. So I don't have, I think there'd be better people to answer that question than me because part of what I study is the ways that, that these, that both policy and language shift over time um, to, to continue to disadvantage disabled people. Mm. That's a really interesting take on it. So would you just say in the few minutes that we've got left that we perhaps need to consider doing more than simply changing the language associated with disability, not just around immigration, but in other walks of life as well? Absolutely. I think, I think that's, that's one of the, the framings of citizenship in general, which is always debated. But we need ways of understanding the value of, of, of all of all citizens, right? Of all Canadians, of all of, of anybody in the country. Um, again, I don't have a simple answer to that because it's it, what I what we've seen over time. And I, I began by by mentioning, you know, that my research looks at the language that we use, right? So where mm-hmm. did these terms come from? Um, and the truth is that when you study that, you understand that the terminology changes. We have nicer ways of talking about things. And yet over time, even those nicer ways of, of talking about things get inflected with um, stigma, right? Um, get overwritten by stereotypes. And um, we live in an ableist society. That's, that's the, the reckoning, right? We live in a society that on a, a, a tangible, practical level and also on the level of the, the, the stories we tell about um, ourselves and about um, disability we, we live in an ableist society where we don't um, have a very flexible or um, uh, inclusive way of uh, picturing or talking about the contributions of a wide range of bodies and, and different minds. Jay, we'll have to leave it here. It was really good talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jay Dolman. She is a professor of English at the University of Waterloo. Jay is the author of the book, Disabled Upon Arrival, Eugenics, Immigration, and the Construction of Race and Disability, which was published in 2018. If you missed any of my conversation today, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Nicholas Hume and Jay Dolmatch for being my guests on the program today. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.